And it, it never quite made sense to some scientists. Um, they noticed that other animals like flies and fish and even lemurs um, definitely made new eggs throughout their lifespan. And we all know that men make new sperm every time they breathe. So why would women be this biological exception? Um, maybe we should take a closer look at this. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Vagina. There. We're just going to get it out of the way. This episode is about vaginas and labias and clitorises and uteruses and ovaries. About half of the human population has some or all of these organs. And yet, it's kind of amazing how little many of us know about them. Not so very long ago, respected doctors would say with straight faces that people's wombs wandered around their bodies and that you had to lure them back to their proper places with nice smells. Now, we are capable of gender affirmation surgeries that give people pleasure, and of course, we can do IVF. But even with all that advancement, so much of this system remains mysterious. How did we get here, and where is the world of vaginas going? To find out, we're talking with Rachel Gross, the former digital science editor of Smithsonian. Rachel has written for BBC Future, The New York Times, Scientific American, and others. And she's the author of the new book, Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. Rachel, welcome. Bethany, thank you. That was a beautiful introduction, and I'm so happy to be here. So I wanted to start with the origin of this book, which came because you accidentally swallowed boric acid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I was I was actually with you in the story until you swallowed the boric acid. Can you tell us how you got to that point? I mean, to be clear, this book was percolating in a more abstract form before I swallowed my vagina poison. Um, I had been thinking about all these gaps in our knowledge about the female body and about the history of women in science and the type of questions that they were asking that were different than their peers. Um, since I had started at Smithsonian, I had started a column on kind of the unsung women who shaped science um, and had written a lot about reproductive biology and animal sex, one of my favorite topics. Um, but yeah, I did have a recurrent vaginal infection that was very unpleasant and eventually led to me getting this suppository called boric acid, which you mentioned, um, that I would only later find out was kind of a atomic bomb for your vagina um, that kind of levels your teeming microbiome and leaves a lot of death in its wake um, and is still one of the only solutions to this recurrent infection, which is called BV or bacterial vaginosis. Um, so that was my life for a week or so. And I had this, uh, this pill capsule container, which I still have on my desk actually, that says poison and has a skull and crossbones on it. Uh, and they really look just like antibiotics. So there was one night when I was very tired and I woke up in the middle of the night and was supposed to do the suppository thing and didn't realize what I was doing. And I swallowed the pill instead. Um, so that's the part you reference. Um, and I ended up in the emergency room, um, not knowing how this was going to react with my system um, and kind of realizing that I didn't know what I'd been putting in my vagina. I had just taken my OBGYN's advice. And even she had said, listen, this is rat poison. We're not exactly sure if it's going to work. 
but this is our kind of last resort. Uh, and it just kind of set me back upon myself thinking about how little I knew about my reproductive system and how much other people must know about it. Um, and, and even doctors and scientists seem to be pretty confused. So I wanted to know what was going on there. I also was wondering, you mentioned it was like an antibiotic, but it seems like if it's going to be a suppository, wasn't it big? Like, <laughs> no, no, um, oh. it's a vaginal suppository and it's the same size as an antibiotic, like the kind filled with powder. It's oh, got like that's very small. Capsule. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the, the other thing that, um, I don't know if you were familiar with it, but I sure am, um, for yeast infections, you get what I call the plunger of doom. And that is like, the kind of syringe with like a white cream in it, an antifungal, and you have to insert that up there and then lay on your back and think about what you've done for like 10 minutes. Um, so that one's bigger. <laughs> and probably I, less likely to swallow it. <laughs> yeah, that's not, not a danger of it. Also, like, I can't believe I'm starting with this, but here we go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to throw you right in. I um, love it as long as you're here for it. So uh, we're going to actually start by defining a few terms because I'm going to talk about the female reproductive system and female genitalia. When I talk about these, what I mean is people born with some or all of those parts, like a vagina, clitoris, uterus, etc. Not all women have them. Not all the people who have them are women. Sex is between your legs. Gender is your identity. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the book that we know so little about the female reproductive tract relative to most other bits of the body. And this seems like a very simple question, and it probably is a simple answer. Why do we know so little about something that's really pretty important? <laughs> yeah, I would say that is the question that I wrote a book to answer. So it is both simple and complicated. Um, and I totally agree with you. It is surprisingly mysterious when it shouldn't be. Um, so the best way I can answer that is, yeah, so it's funny. When you ask scientists this question, they will often start talking about how the female reproductive system is a, quote, black box. It's very complicated. It's all inside, whereas the male reproductive system is more just hanging out there. But then you push them and they talk about how we haven't really asked the questions we've needed to ask. And we've often assumed that there are all these mysteries um, that can't be solved or that would take really complex tools to solve. So I think a lot of it comes down to you see what you want to see or what you expect to see, um, which were literally the words that a lot of scientists ended up telling me. Um, so the female body was either considered less important for reproduction, which is ironic, or less interesting and more passive. And a lot of these assumptions shaped the questions scientists were asking and how much energy they were putting into getting the answers. So there are a lot of very simple questions that were not answered until very recently. There are also more complicated questions that we didn't think to ask. It's interesting because you think about, for example, Harvey and the discovery of the circulatory system. Mm -hmm. Discovery is relative. Um, but you know, he, you know, mapped the circulatory system and, and, you know, people were going into cadavers and like digging out hearts and doing stuff like that. And yet they were like, no, we can't possibly study the uterus. No. 
<laughs> right. But like, um, it's, I, also the heart is not dangling out there like the testicles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Great point. Um, I mean, you obviously had a lot of these cultural barriers. Like there were a lot of times when uh, dissecting women uh, and working with their reproductive parts was considered unacceptable or when you only had access to hanged criminals and most of them were men. So like there were some logistical problems, sure, but there were plenty of uteruses hanging about. And we know that by like the 16th century, we had people like the father of anatomy, Vesalius, cutting open uteruses and illustrating them and yet still not getting it right. So it wasn't just access to those parts. I also wonder if there was kind of a cultural block around like the miracle of life, right? Mm. You know, because this is where babies come from. Do, do you think there was any of that? Like, oh, I, I don't know if I can, we can get into like the beautiful miracle that is birth or anything like that. Or was it just kind of like, ew, lady bit? <laughs> that is that is super interesting. Um, so I will say, looking back at the earlier anatomical drawings um, of lady bits, they often are focusing on the gravid uterus or the uterus with a baby in it. So there was a fascination with birth and baby making and a desire to understand this miracle. Uh, and I even think that it became this idea that if you figured out that, then you kind of had truly conquered nature. Uh, you'd figured out reproduction, which was considered this big, crazy mystery. Um, but again, there were still ways in which they were seeing what they thought they would see, what they expected to see. So they'd see like a full human being in the uterus or the guy who invented the microscope thought he saw tiny folded up human beings in the head of each sperm, which he did not. He convinced himself that he saw that somehow. Uh, but that seems to have to do with our expectations about the miracle of birth or about how conception happens more than straight observation. Yeah. And of course, this never stopped dudes from opining on body parts they did not have. <laughs> so you bring up Hippocrates, Galen, Freud, mm -hmm. and you have a whole section on what kind of um, medieval scholars and Renaissance scholars thought and said about the clitoris in particular, and how uh, Matteo Realdo Colombo discovered it, I put that in air quotes, in 1559, <laughs> because I'm sure clitoris owners the world over were shocked, shocked, to find I out they shocked. had a new organ. Thank Florida. you, Colombo. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, <laughs> and I was really struck when reading about this by a single line footnote that you put in this section, where you noted that Greek, Persian, and Arabic scholars knew full well about the clitoris. And I was wondering, what do we know about what non-European people wrote about the clitoris, vagina, and other parts? Like, are there Chinese writings or Indian or Arabic writings on the female reproductive system? Yeah, um, I'm so glad you pointed that out because there was there was so many like fruitful rabbit holes that I really wanted to go down there. Hmm, that sounded like a pun I didn't intend. Um, I'm here for it. <laughs> but yeah, there was so much interesting stuff and it was difficult to try to follow one narrative and to be able to show what was happening with the clitoris in one train of thought. Um, it would be really difficult to expand out to what everyone thought of the clitoris. Um, but 
yeah, to answer your question, there were some really interesting texts, um, both ancient Chinese, uh, Indian, and Persian that mentioned the clitoris. Um, what I found was poetry and erotic texts. So like literally the Kama Sutra and fourth century Chinese texts were really good at describing female arousal. It's not like they got everything right, um, but they talked about like vaginal lubrication and um, female ejaculation or orgasm or fluids, stuff like that. So they clearly were observing a lot of steps that I didn't see in other texts. Um, and I think it's because of the focus of those texts. I did focus more on like anatomical and medical texts. And those were more focused on the uterus and the more reproductive organs, I would say. Um, one guy who was super influential was Avicenna, the Persian physician who was like as big as Galen and was very important in like a thousand AD. Um, so he did work with some Galenic ideas of the female as like an inferior or turned inside out male. Uh, but he did say that she made female sperm. Um, and so that she had to have female semen to reproduce. Uh, and so he talked about orgasm to do with that. So those were really important ideas that spread throughout the Arabic world. And for a long time also, in fact, until astonishingly recently, scientists have thought of kind of the female reproductive system as kind of the default setting. I love the way you put it in the book as the default setting on the iPhone. <laughs> um, and this is actually what I was taught when I first took biology and anatomy. I only oh. got a different view when I finally took medical anatomy in 2019. So the idea oh. was that if the system got testosterone at the right time, poof, male. If it didn't, poof, female. And this was literally what I was taught until yeah. I finally took a full medical anatomy course in 2019. And I was wondering if you could talk about how this is not quite true. <laughs> <laughs> like not at all true. Um, I mean, I'm glad that you got a different view in 2019, to be honest. Um, Thank you, Harvard Medical Anatomy. You're great. <laughs> I mean, I took Harvard Reproductive Biology um, since we were in the same fellowship and I got a little bit of a hint that that maybe wasn't the case, but by and large, it was still that testosterone sets this pathway for maleness and for male features to form. And the absence of testosterone means that the female continues along the default path. Um, and yes, that is not true. Uh, there are now plenty of biologists who are looking at these active factors that are part of ovarian development and these pathways that need to be switched on for the female bits to develop. Um, so maybe it helps to go back to when we're in the womb, six weeks old, we basically all look the same. Uh, we have like little limb buds and we have something called a genital tubercle between our legs. That's just like a swelling. Um, we also have the internal plumbing. We have kind of the the early tracks for that. So two sets of tubing, uh, malarian ducts, and what's the other one? 
Okay. I can't remember it. We have both sets of tubing basically. And ultimately one will wither away and one will develop, but it's not like one is the default and one is the bells and the whistles. Uh, So we haven't identified all the factors that go into the female one developing, but we know they're there. And one thing I really liked was we actually have remnants of both sets of tubing, um, no matter what sex, what gender you are. So females have a little prostatic utricle that dangles off the fallopian tubes and males have a little like uterine uh, structure inside the urethra, I believe. Um, And they're kind of just like reminders that we all have the same basic universal body plan. Uh, and we're all sort of embroidered upon that, but we're not, there's not like an opposites or like contrasting sexes. Uh, we're just different stages along alternate paths coming out of the same plan. That's beautiful oh, that we yeah. all have little tiny remnant remnant pieces. That's lovely. <laughs> Apparently they can be pretty annoying for people doing surgery, but yeah. And, and like you were saying, I never learned that kind of stuff in anatomy. Many anatomists I talked to had never heard of it. Um, and I think that kind of changes the way we think about our bodies when we're learning embryology and development. And your book is divided into anatomical sections, um, such as the clitoris, the vagina, the ovary, et cetera. And throughout the book, um, you make an effort to talk about women who have advanced the field of gynecology, as opposed to leaving it all to Freud's idea that all female problems stem from jealousy over not having male bits. Thanks, Freud. (laughs) Um, One of the names that people probably wouldn't have heard is that of Marie Bonaparte, who is, yes, related to Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. And she Great not Brandy. only studied under Freud, she had herself operated on in the name of science. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about her because she's amazing in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. She was just an absolutely fascinating character that I became obsessed with. Um, I don't remember where I first found her, but she's definitely been mentioned in books before. Um, so she was she was known to like the second wave feminists, the American feminists um, as this Freudian acolyte who uh, tried to mess with her own nature to conform to male ideas of pleasure. Um, And they had a lot of mean words to say about her, which got me super interested in what she had actually done and what her actual beliefs were. Um, So she was um, basically a noble woman, who was coming up in the interwar period. And she had always wanted to be a doctor, but because of her gender and because she was supposed to marry rich, which she did becoming the princess of Greece and Denmark, um, she wasn't able to follow that path. So later in her forties, she became really interested in psychoanalysis and she managed to meet Freud in order to get psychoanalysis. So to actually be treated and to learn about her own, as she called it, frigidity or inability to orgasm during vaginal sex, which I really just wish I could tell her like, girl, that's not how it works. Um, But this was the time of Freud when he was expounding the vaginal orgasm as this pinnacle of womanhood. And so she thought something was wrong with her and she thought she was inadequate and that none of her sexual relationships 
um, which she had a lot of, had fulfilled her. And so she started getting really deeply into psychoanalysis. Um, And then she diverged from Freud in a really interesting way, uh, where he was basically saying at that time that the clitoris is a small phallus and it is this like remnant that reminds women that they do not have what men have and that they have just this little ghost of a phallus. And in order to mature, they have to give up clitoral pleasure and transfer their orgasm to their vagina. I cannot use enough air quotes to explain how ridiculous this idea is and how unscientific it is. I'm just still in there uh, thinking that I'm haunted by a tiny little ghost phallus. Oh my God. I know. (laughs) What am I saying? (laughs) It Um, follows me around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I think he literally described women at one point as um, little creatures without a penis. I'm just rolling my eyes, which you can't see. Um, but it it is interesting that there is like a kernel of anatomical truth buried in the crap he had to say, because yes, the clitoris is a phallus that develops from the same embryological structures and has capacity for erection and is made of the same kind of erectile tissue. But he didn't go that way. Um, he went with like, this is your vestigial masculinity. You need to reject it and you need to have vaginal orgasms and be maternal and give birth to babies. And then you are a true woman. Um, So Marie Bonaparte heard all that. She didn't quite buy it. She was really proud of her clitoris, even though she was um, conflicted about it, but she thought of it as kind of the part of her that was masculine, which for her meant like creative and high achieving and assertive and made her really unique thinker. And she wanted to find some way to bring these two parts of her together. So she did ultimately uh, help develop a surgery that would try to move her clitoris closer to her vaginal opening so that she could have more stimulation during penetrative sex. And she had that operation three times. Poor thing. Yeah. Didn't go well. It was like the 1920s. I mean, at least there was ether. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And it's just so like amazing that she made all these leaps and that she was, I mean, she did her own research, which also was crazy to me. She sat in on like a hundred different women's uh, gynecological exams and took measurements of their genitals and asked them about their like sexual reactions. And that was just not done at the time. And I, don't think that a man in her place could have done some of that stuff. And she published it in big medical journals under a male pseudonym. So she was really doing some remarkable stuff. And so what she worried about was kind of clitoral placement, right? She thought that a clitoris closer to the opening of the vagina would result in more orgasms during penetrative sex. Um, And this is kind of resulting from this idea that the clitoris is very small, but in fact, it's really large. Um, And a lot of people describe it as having wings or something. I always thought it looks like a chicken wishbone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like flipped over. Mm -hmm. It's very wishbone shaped. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could give a brief kind of description of the anatomy of the clitoris and what that means um, for female pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So 
this was one of the pieces of knowledge that I wish Marie Bonaparte had access to was that she was referring to her clitoris as the outer portion. Um, and really that's the glands clitoris. So that's basically like the head of the penis, if we have to compare, but that glands, it has a shaft and it goes back into the body. And then there are two long, um, kind of the wishbones that you're talking about two arms that go back, um, against the pubic bone up to three and a half inches each. And then there are two bulbs that encircle the vagina and sort of hug it. And, and the vagina is kind of the stretchy muscular tube. Um, the clitoris is sort of embedded in the walls around it. So it's a pretty extensive structure that interacts really intimately with the urethra, the vagina, um, and other parts of the pelvis. And it's mostly made of erectile tissue. So it swells and grows and it's really dynamic. Um, and as for what that means for female pleasure, it helps explain a lot of the different experiences we have with sexuality. So there are different experiences with penetrative sex and clitoral stimulation. And part of that is that these structures have a wide variation um, across bodies and they can be deeper and like larger and smaller. Uh, and that the clitoris interacts with many different parts of the vaginal canal. So you can feel it inside and outside. Um, and I think maybe the obvious takeaway is that the idea of a clitoral or a vaginal orgasm is absurd. There's that was no... my next thing. <laughs> oh, good. Um, there's no like separation or different type of orgasm. It's that the kind of center of female pleasure is just more expansive than we thought. And it covers a lot of ground. Uh, and both orgasms are centered around the clitoris or I wouldn't even say both, but you know what I mean? All orgasms. Mm, thank you. <laughs> um, yes. yes. I, I would really like uh, a lot of the authors of all the romance novels I've read to please listen to this section of the podcast, go back, rewind, listen again. Or like any film where like a woman is penetrated and immediately has an orgasm. Like, yep. <laughs> fact check. <laughs> um, so the book is called Vagina Obscura. Um, mm -hmm. And there is, of course, a whole section on the vagina. Mm -hmm. And this, I was interested because this is actually the section where, above all others, you delve into the vaginas of other species, not just humans, but also whales and ducks and so on. And I was wondering why you chose to bring other species in here in kind of the vagina section, as opposed to the clitoris, the egg, the uterus. What do ducks have to tell us about our own vaginas and also the role of the vagina in evolution? Mm, that is a really good question. Um, the vagina chapter was really difficult for me, which I was like, what's wrong with me? This is a book on vaginas. Why am I having so much trouble? Um, I think because partially a lot of the questions I had were not in the literature and I would reach a lot of dead ends. Um, and so it's almost like I had to move to animals to get like a bigger context and to get like a comparative, uh, like a, a comparison to shed light on the human vagina, which was crazy. So I talk a lot to Patty Brennan, who is a biologist um, who is 
credited or made famous by her study of duck penises and duck vaginas, as she will remind you. Um, so she is the person who helped us understand how complicated and ridden with conflict um, duck sex can be, that the male can have this really, um, this really like imposing, violently exploding structure. And the female has a lot of tools to guard against violent copulation and to choose the genetics of her offspring um, in different ways. So she has a really complex, dynamic uh, vaginal tract that has blind alleyways and dead ends. And she seems to be able to help select the sperm of the father of her offspring using it. So what was my point here? I mean, it really says a lot about how kind of the vagina plays a very strong role in kind of the offspring that results, right? Like people think, oh, all of the, all of the conflict is kind of who gets access to the female. Mm. But a lot of the conflict takes place after someone yes. gets access to the female. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, that that's definitely part of it. And just... I think the vagina had often, you know, since Freud and probably before been portrayed as this passive tube. And honestly, even like the second wave feminist text that I was looking at, um, they were comparing it to the clitoris as this juxtaposition where the clitoris is this nexus of female pleasure and power. And then the vagina is kind of like this boring tube. Um, and like Kinsey in his sexology studies did research where they would poke the vagina um, and the clitoris and find that women didn't feel being poked in the vagina um, gently, by the way, not like painfully. Uh, so it was like this not, just not doing anything. And looking at other species research showed me that was absolutely not true. There was a crazy diversity of vaginal tracts that had huge roles in reproduction um, and in, yeah, in intersexual conflict or intersexual cooperation. Um, and it also showed how little we had looked at what was happening with human vaginas. So one question that I kept trying to answer in that chapter was what happens to the human vagina throughout life, like through puberty and with childbirth and after childbirth and with menopause. And almost every OBGYN I talked to was like, oh, we don't really have data on that. Like even there were textbooks, there's a textbook called just like the vulva that said some basic thing that was like within six weeks, the vagina can go back to its normal shape and size after vaginal birth. And I like went and tracked down the authors of the textbook and anyone involved in that chapter. And they were like, well, that's just kind of from observation. We didn't actually do a study. Um, we're not sure where that comes from. And I was like, how can nobody have studied this? Like birth is really important. Vaginas are really important. Um, they're important. Pelvic floor disorders are super common. Yes, yes. <laughs> it did lead me to the pelvic floor, which had a lot more research on it, but it was still like siloed as like, this is not that important. Once you've gotten the baby out, we don't really care about your vagina. Um, so yeah. And I, I mean, I found a woman who tried to understand 
the shapes of the human vagina um, by making molds of different shapes and trying to categorize them. She was a retired anatomy teacher and um, she was totally fascinating. And she described all the challenges she got in funding and just having her colleagues laugh at her or not wanting to publish her work in newsletters. And it was just kind of really showed that this research had been sidelined or not considered important or appropriate. Um, and so there were all these questions, not answers. And I think that's partly why I went to the animal kingdom. Um, also through Patty Brennan, who was studying animals, like she was literally telling me that she would look at dogfish vaginas and what happened to them with pregnancy. And she was like, well, I'll look at the human as the baseline. And there was no information on the human. So I was getting that message reinforced through her work. And I thought I could show that. Um, through the animal vagina work. Does that make sense? Yes. And it's it's also really, it, it leads a lot to kind of my next question, which, you know, we think about the vagina as like this tube, lubricated tube. Um, but it's, there's so much more. There is an entire microbiome in there. And of course, we all know now that we've got bacteria everywhere, including up our hoo-hahs. But like, <laughs> I imagine people, a lot of people probably just think the only thing living up there is yeast. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure a lot of people think that, but what is the vaginal microbiome for? Yeah, this was kind of the the new science that really drew me into this book and something that I got into after my own infection, um, realizing that there is a really important healthy ecosystem that lives in your vagina and it can get perturbed and it can get off balance. And that is connected to some of the conditions we get that we don't want for me, that being BV. Um, so yeah, it's the vagina has billions of microbes in it and they basically, they protect from invaders because this is really like this liminal space between you and not you. That's how I think of it. Um, so it's, it's like your mouth. Um, it has to be like both porous to the outside, but make sure that stuff doesn't get in that you don't want. So one of the big players is lactobacillus. Um, there's many different species and there's many different like mixtures that different people have, but lactobacillus is the same genus of bacteria that ferments milk into cheese and yogurt, and it creates lactic acid and it keeps the vagina at a mild acidic level, about the same as a glass of red wine, which I love. Ooh, um, that's lovely. <laughs> I know, just a glass of red wine in my vagina. Um, so you want that stuff going on. And there's many other important microbes as well that we don't know as much about. Um, and there's usually also bacteria that we used to consider dangerous or harmful, um, including uh, Gardnerella and like small, um, small bacteria that thrive without oxygen. So like many, 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 probably most people have some of that as well. Not all lactobacillus. Um, there's, I think I say in the book, there's no wrong way to have a vagina. It's like a rhesus cup. Um, there's many healthy mixtures, but we're now finding out kind of the jobs that these bacteria do and the things that disturb them. Uh, and some of those are douching, which a lot of women in America do. Um, any sort of kind of cleansing or rinsing out of the vagina with something other than water or mild soap. Um, 
not great. You're kind of stripping away the protection. Uh, and other things like penises, semen, not great for the vagina. It hates it. Um, it has a higher pH, so it lowers the acidity and the vagina often doesn't like that. Um, so there's this whole new frontier now of microbiology that's looking at, can we modulate the vaginal ecosystem to improve health or to get rid of disease? Um, and what does a healthy vagina look like? Yeah. And I wanted to follow up on that because of course I can't think of microbiomes without thinking about poop transplants. And of <laughs> course you cover Mm-hmm. vaginal microbiome transplants because i mean it really seems like a logical conclusion you know if bacterial vaginosis for example is an overgrowth of bacteria in the vagina that are bad or at least deeply uncomfortable mm. you could replace that with better bacteria and maybe solve your problem and i was really interested in kind of how a vaginal microbiome transplant could be studied what do we need to know about that And I'm especially interested because when you talk to scientists about this, they said, oh, we need to develop a product for a vaginal microbiome transplant. And I was wondering why we need a product that is marketed to people and sold, as opposed to like, maybe just use a popsicle stick. (laughs) Um, Yeah. A sanitized, Uh, sanitized popsicle stick. Sanitized. Right. I I think (laughs) that actually that last part is key. So Um, yeah, I had the exact same thought, which was like, when I read that people were thinking about vaginal microbiome transplants, I was, and like, it was, had difficulty getting off the ground. It was taking a long time. I was like, didn't we just have fecal transplants that were like massively successful, um, and had all this research on them eventually, uh, if we can do that, like, why can't we do a vaginal microbiome transplant? Um, so turns out that uh, lady issues and sexual health were not always taken as seriously, um, as gut problems. You shock me. (laughs) Many surprises in this book. Um, but there has been a trial, um, in Israel of a vaginal microbiome transplant from one woman to others. So it was a small pilot trial and it was for recurrent bacterial vaginosis. Um, So yeah, like you said, the initial idea of these transplants is to solve a problem that has no good solution. And that's one of them. Other things that the microbiome is implicated in are like preterm birth, recurrent UTIs, um, and other like um, some sexually transmitted infections. So they started with BV um, because it was a gynecologist who ran a clinic for hard to treat uh, problems, including that. And she noticed this was a problem. She learned about the fecal transplant work and she made that leap and she had some success. It was a very small pilot trial, like a few women. Um, and the other thing was that other scientists were pretty worried because of the dangers of doing this kind of transplant from one person to another. So vaginal fluid, like there is the danger of microbes that spread STIs. Um, There's also the danger of semen or pregnancy. And those are very bad things. Um, Definitely there's disease uh, dangers with fecal transplants as well. But I think this is 
this was a big hurdle for this field. Um, you have to really, really ensure that the samples are safe and you have to like test the person a lot, um, which is hard because vaginal fluid is not as plentiful as poop. Um, yeah, we're just going there. Uh, so that uh, logistically is very important. Um, you don't just want to be like trading fluids. Um, but I'm also, sure this would be a shock to everyone who has had sexual relations recently. Don't just trade <laughs> fluids, you guys. Dangerous. Okay, so that's actually, um, that was a really cool way of seeing it um, that the gynecologist who did that trial mentioned to me. She was like, you know, it's known that sexual partners can have similar microbiomes, like female, female partners especially can have like a lot of um, kind of merging of their vaginal microbiomes. And this is like getting a new sexual partner, but knowing that their microbiome is going to help yours and improve it. And I was like, oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really sweet. Oh, it's kind of romantic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the idea is that a product would probably be more safe. Like it would be very yes. tested and yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so yeah, the product. Um, so there are scientists who have done kind of the most extensive, like big data work on the vaginal microbiome with thousands and thousands, um, of women's samples. And they believe that they can distill that down to a formula to make a biosynthesized. So it's a living product to be clear. Um, but they're saying it'd be based on all this data and it would be kind of optimum for the most amount of women. And that would be the benefit um, because you do want to know that the baseline you're using is good for you. So anecdotally, I heard from biologists who had um, saved their own vaginal fluid, um, the popsicle method, like you were saying, um, though they used a tampon. Um, so like when they had to get antibiotics, um, they would save some so that they could reinsert it afterwards in themselves. And I think that's super interesting. Um, but the product people are saying, how do you know that the first sample you use is that great or will solve your problem for people that have recurrent like infections. Um, so they want to optimize it. Uh, and they're not that far along yet, but that's well, the idea. Um, and it's also true for every microbiome. Like we, we literally do not know what a average, well, first of all, we don't know if average is good. And we also don't know what an average microbiome for any body part really is. Exactly. I think <laughs> this is the problem. Like they're saying they can find an optimum one for the most amount of people, but there's so many unknowns, so many questions there um, that there's just like a lot of steps to get there. Uh, I guess for the fecal transplants, that is the direction it went. If I'm right. Um, I remember Ed Young had that amazing story that was about, um, I could use the word shampoo as in like fake poop um, to describe <laughs> manufactured fecal transplants. Um, but I, I'm not washing my hair today. I can't do it. Ah! It was even better than that. I'll have to look it up. Um, so it, there, there's some logic to that, but honestly, I think that there's all these basic questions that need to be answered first. And I also was, I have to say my favorite part of your book was actually the section of the book devoted to menopause. Um, because this is the section, like, this is one of those things that nobody talks about. 
nobody talks about menopause. Mm. <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about menopause. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting because the whole idea with menopause is that eggs just run out. People with ovaries are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have. And then when they're gone, they're gone. Use them or lose them, right? Right. And I was astonished to read in your book that that might not be true. And I was wondering if you could talk about this fascinating new horizon of eggs. Yes. Um, I was also utterly astonished by this. Um, So I was looking at ovarian biologists and trying to understand like what's new in that realm. And it turned out that like almost 20 years ago, there had been these papers that came out that said, we think that mice might make new eggs in their ovaries. And um, later they looked at those eggs and said, it looks like they can make new mouse pups. And we think humans might have them as well. Um, And then it was just like a huge scientific debate, like lots of lots of anger and strong feelings. And I wondered like if anyone had followed up on how this work was going and how come I'd never heard of it as a science writer who wrote about reproduction. And it turned out to just be this, um, this real like flashpoint in ovarian biology, maybe like the biggest debate in recent history um, where there was sort of an old guard of people who had been brought up on knowing the biology of the ovary, which is exactly what you said. It's like the ovary is an hourglass and you start with a couple million eggs. You actually start with more before birth, but uh, 75% of them die before you're born. And it's always been this weird mystery. Like why would millions and millions and millions of eggs just die throughout life? Um, And they're pre-programmed to do that. So it's all intentional somehow. Um, So like almost every ovarian biologist until recently had grown up on this model that the egg is like an hourglass and eggs trickle away starting before birth even um, so that you're actually losing 75% of your eggs before you're even born. And from then on, it's just this kind of steady drip. And each month, one of those eggs is selected to be the one that is ovulated and to like then you get like the hormonal cycle and you get your period. Um, and it, it never quite made sense to some scientists. Um, they noticed that other animals like flies and fish and even lemurs um, definitely made new eggs throughout their lifespan. And we all know that men make new sperm every time they breathe. So why would women be this biological exception? Um, maybe we should take a closer look at this. And yeah, so increasingly it's looking like over the past 10 years, we have this building um, evidence that there are stem cells in the female ovaries that can, under the right circumstances, give rise to new eggs. And the question now is not, do they exist? Um, It did take like almost 20 years to say, yeah, they probably exist. Um, But it's what are they doing in a natural human ovary? Because they've been taken out and kind of coaxed to become eggs but we don't know what they're doing throughout the lifespan. Like, do they respond to injury or damage, like certain types of chemotherapy, or do they actually contribute to the oocyte pool? Cause they're pretty rare. They think. So the, one of the things that 
there are several things that could be done. If you could restart kind of the egg making process, you could help people, for example, who have gone through chemotherapy. So that's one use. But the yeah. other is that you could potentially stop menopause, which yeah. is like, whoa. Yeah. And I was kind of wondering what are the pros and cons of like not menopausing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like, this has become tricky cultural territory. Um, because there is a conversation about menopause happening, which is amazing and way overdue. And I think we were talking offline that like Dr. Jen Gunter has the menopause manifesto where she talks about the history of menopause as how it's been seen as this kind of degeneration of the female body and like an end point. And that's complete bullshit. It's part of our biology to have this natural phase of life, just as we have puberty. And that is true. But menopause does come with some things that some of us might rather not have. So what was helpful to me to understand and untangle this was that there's the transition of menopause and there's these like side effects that we, I think, talk about more nowadays, like hot flashes, vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy. Um, and then there's the long-term health risks. And those include like osteoporosis. So your bones get more brittle because you don't have as much estrogen, um, risks for heart disease and stroke and dementia. And those risks will be different for every person, but it's definitely related to the timing of menopause and the hormonal cycle, um, mostly ending. So this is huge because it affects half the people on this earth. And it's, I think that there is logic to asking if we can alleviate some of the risks we'd rather not have. I think you can be subjective about some of them and you can choose how to treat um, some of the like dryness, hot flashes. There are different things available, um, but we know that hormone therapy, uh, it's not supposed to be used like long, long-term because it does have risks and it doesn't address all, like as we have it now, it doesn't address all those long-term risks. So there is room for innovation and for new health interventions there. Well, and also I think it's important to note that just because something is natural doesn't mean it's positive and doesn't mean we're obligated to suffer through it. Exactly. Yes. So <laughs> like osteoporosis might indeed be natural, but I don't want it. <laughs> right. I, I, it's like, I'm not putting a judgment or like a moral, um, category on any of these things, but many of us choose to have an epidural, um, because we don't want to have that natural pain and that is our choice. And I don't think anybody should judge that. Um, and I, one really interesting thing an ovarian biologist told me was that, yeah, menopause is natural. It's basically like puberty and we would never think of halting puberty. And then I realized actually we are talking about that right now about delaying uh, puberty for kids that are transitioning. And that actually is like medically supported by some groups and doctors are doing it. And again, you can't use just the fact that something is quote unquote natural to say that it's desirable. Like we do have choices over how we want to intervene in our bodies. Um, I think the difficult part is there are all these toxic 
non-scientific like attitudes and cultural factors coming into it. So the way that the culture paints menopause as a boogeyman or a disease um, inaccurately does skew how we think about it and how we think about which part of its parts of it are desirable and undesirable. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for example, in puberty, we medicate lots of things around puberty. Consider acne. Mm, You know, most people going through puberty are going to get at least one zit. And there's loads of products out there to make sure you don't. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so Jen made a really good point. I interviewed her for that chapter, which was that you don't want to treat menopause as like this thing, like a similar thing that happens to everyone. Some people are concerned about specific side effects like the hot flashes um, or the fear of eventual dementia because they know it runs in their family. And so you want to target it to what people's concerns are and not just have like a one size fits all um, answer. But the people looking at um, what, what we were talking about, the delaying menopause idea, they're trying to say this is an option that's interesting to pursue. We already know it's going to be useful for people who have gone through chemotherapy or had uh, premature menopause. Uh, We think that some women might also want it to delay their natural menopause. And so I also wanted to ask, you have sections in this book on things like endometriosis, um, IVF, as well as gender affirmation surgery. Um, But I actually noticed you do not have a section on polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, or things like cervical cancer. Um, There's actually nothing, there's no cervix chapter. (laughs) Um, This is a whole huge pile of organs. Many things can go wrong with all of these organs. There's enough for probably 19 books at least. But I was wondering how you ended up choosing which body parts and issues you covered and which you decided to maybe save for another time. Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good question too. The other chapter I really wanted was one on the placenta, which is like the only temporary organ and is so interesting and beautiful. Um, But yeah, like you said, it's one book. Um, It already covered so many fields of science that it was like insane to think that I could do all that in one book. Um, So the way I ended up structuring it, as you kind of alluded to, was it's like a journey to the center of the female body with all those words in quotes, Um, going from kind of the outside in. So we have two chapters on the clitoris and we get to the vagina, the vaginal microbiome, the ovaries, the uterus. Um, There's a vulva in there somewhere. But I looked at areas of science where we were really reimagining that organ and its functions and its importance to the body as a whole. And so that led me to focus on specific organs that had more like new research around them, or we're going through a sort of renaissance uh, or that we were learning were more dynamic in some way that we hadn't seen because of our assumptions about what female bodies can and cannot do. So the cervix is really interesting. And I think it probably comes into the uterus chapter. And I have definitely written about the advent of the pap smear um, and how important that was for cancer prevention. Um, But I didn't have a whole chapter's worth on it. Um, So I had to kind of group it, I think. Um, The other thing I would say is there are a ton of things that can go wrong. There are a ton of reproductive diseases, but that was not the focus of the book. 
when I get into certain reproductive diseases like endometriosis, um, I am definitely exploring the experience of people who have that and their interactions with the medical system, but also how finally studying that is helping us understand how dynamic the uterus is and how it regrows itself every month and how that's pretty unique in the entire human body and how better studying and understanding that is actually helping us understand regeneration and immunity as a whole. And actually that leads well to one of the things that I especially appreciated about this book is that you included people's personal stories about their reproductive systems, including people who had undergone things like you know, endometriosis, but also things like female genital cutting. And those sections were very much about their stories and their voices, not you telling their stories. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of how you did that um, and your process with working with these people, because reproductive systems are personal, like super (laughs) personal. They're way more personal than like your appendix. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This was definitely a challenge and like a gift of writing this book um, was I knew that it wasn't just about what scientists and what science are learning about the female body. It's how does it trickle down to people who live in these bodies and our relationships with our reproductive and sexual systems and how we interact with medicine about these problems um, and these organs. So I definitely knew that I wanted to speak to patients, women, and people who had had these experiences. Um, and it turned out like I, I learned a lot about reporting, um, with people who have gone through trauma. Uh, I didn't have enough, I didn't have much formal training. So I did kind of develop my own standards for myself. And one thing was I, I made like an extra effort to be really transparent about why I was speaking to them, what I was doing with this book and why their story was important before we talked. So I wanted them to have like full consent and feel like they understood the project. And, and then if they still wanted to share their story for it, um, then we would proceed. So I tried to like answer all their questions about it, explain like, like, no, this chapter isn't about Um, ending female genital cutting as a cultural practice. It's about the anatomy of the clitoris and how that impacts many women. And it involves um, the advent of this repair surgery that is now being done for some women who have gone through cutting. Um, So I did that. And then in the actual interviews where it was extremely personal and sometimes very difficult. Um, I did a lot of pausing to check if people were okay, if they wanted to take a break, if they'd rather not share this. And I also let them know exactly how I would run their stories by them before it was in print. So there were some cases where I did just show them the text, which I had never really done before. Um, But sometimes it really warranted that. And there were some where I would give them a call and I'd go through every major detail and quote of their story and have them sign off on it so that they felt comfortable. And I just didn't want anyone to be surprised by the way they were represented. And this actually 
a part of this is is because you're very clear that a lot of the history of things like early gynecology and even modern gynecology is not just sexist. It is sexist. It's also racist and violent and honestly terrible in a lot of ways. Yep. And I was actually wondering how you think this history has affected the way people study gynecological issues now, um, because of course you're covering a lot of very modern research. How do you think kind of that dark history and to some extent dark present mm. has changed the way research is done on the female reproductive system? Yeah, I mean, I would really hope that it has resulted in more sensitivity and caution um, around study design and participants. And I definitely saw examples of where that was the case. So going back to the microbiome transplants, actually, um, that was an incredibly dark history where you had doctors in the 50s that had transferred vaginal fluid to pregnant women that um, had infections and they got the infections and so did their husbands. And it did not seem like there was any consent involved. Um, and I think many people are familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis experiments um, or with the uh, the history of HeLa cells, um, the kind of immortal cancer cells that were taken from a Black woman named Hedretta Lacks um, without her permission and propagated into infinity, um, or even the Puerto Rico trials for the pill, where very poor women were not given the full information about the side effects of the pill, many of which were not even known, um, and were then used as the basis for the pill, which would then be used by a lot of people in more like affluent societies. Um, so there is super ugly history. And I do think that a lot of gynecology is aware of that. So with the new microbiome transplants, some of that caution around doing those trials, um, doing a ton of safety tests and taking a long time to select the right participants and give them the full information, I think comes out of that knowledge of that dark history. And I did talk to those researchers about that. Um, there's definitely a history in gynecology of relying on poor, vulnerable women as guinea pigs who also got free treatment. So I go a lot into um, the free hospital for women in uh, Brookline in Boston and how it really was kind of a charity institution that gave really needed reproductive treatment and uh, birth support. Also, the women that came in were often used for their reproductive tissues um, and in clinical trials. And even if they signed a form, it is hard to say how they were influenced by the position they were in and the fact that they needed these services. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being here and giving the world a great new book on gonads. My pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for having me and having such thoughtful questions prepared. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel Gross and her new book, Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage, we've got links at scienceforthepeople.ca. This show is free to you and me because of our lovely dedicated patrons who support our editors and producers. If you'd like to support the show, we've got a link to our Patreon at our website. We've also got links where you can follow us on social media or leave us a kind review on any of the podcasting apps. Follows and reviews and shares also help and they don't cost anything. Thanks for listening.
And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.